0: Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I am Jamie Mites. Today is the third episode of our second season, History's Lessons. This season, we are exploring topics that our students said they wanted to know more about after taking our classes. Our third episode explores America's conflict in Vietnam. To learn more about the Vietnam War and its crucial Cold War context, I spoke with Dr. Scott Billingsley. Dr. Billingsley is an associate provost and professor of history at UNCP, where he teaches classes on modern American history, including a course on the subject of today's podcast. Hello, Dr. Billingsley. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the Vietnam War. Um, And I want to kind of kick things off asking you, when we think about America's involvement in Vietnam and the conflict in Vietnam. Where do you think we need to begin in time when we start having this conversation?
1: You know, some scholars will go all the way back to, say, World War I, um, when uh, Ho Chi Minh, who was the communist leader in North Vietnam, you know, tried to get an audience with President Woodrow Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference at at the end of, of the Great War. I'll probably really start my story in the 1940s. Um, I think it's important for people to understand um, that the Vietnam War, as with many things, particularly with regard to foreign policy um, in the United States in the post-World War II era, really is couched in the context of the Cold War um, and more specifically in the containment policy uh, of the Cold War. Um, the The containment policy was was outlined in the late 40s. State Department official based in Moscow named George Kennan kind of outlined that and what is uh, famously known as the Long Telegram. Uh, But basically, it it says that, you know, the Soviet Union is bound and determined to spread communism around the world, and the United States and other Western powers need to stop that from happening. And so while we may not be able to roll back the gains that the communists had made in Eastern Europe or you know eventually in, in China uh, and other places, um, at least we can try to contain the spread. And so the Vietnam War is really set in that Cold War context and in that containment policy context.
0: So um, is the concern then that with Ho Chi Minh that he's being influenced by China, given the proximity? Or that he's being influenced by the Soviet Union. What is what is the concern for American policymakers in the 40s?
1: Yeah, so American policymakers, um, really, um, their, their basic assumption was very often all communism flows out of Moscow. And so, you know, you had the Soviet Union, um, which clearly had been communist for, you know, a number of years. China then fell to communism in 1949, uh, the same year that the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb, uh, you know, several years ahead of when the United States thought they would. And so it really, put the us on high alert um and in 1950 um national security council issued a document um called NSC 68 uh that really sort of uh, shaped um uh military and and diplomatic policy for the next few decades really and, um, you know, the, um, the, for instance, the defense budget, you know, went up by 350%, you know, over the next few years, um, in a, in response to this. And so Ho Chi Minh was an avowed Marxist. He had been a Marxist for, you know, a long time. He was also a nationalist. Uh, and, um, he emphasized the, the Marxism side of him when it benefited him, and he emphasized the nationalists aspect. Uh, But both elements were always there. And I would like to mention that, you know, North Vietnam, you know, had pretty consistent objectives throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, um, you know, from the time that they were fighting with uh, the French, and we can talk a little more about that, about French colonialism, um, you know, on through the American involvement in the war. Uh, but basically, they wanted three things. Um, they wanted to um, eventually, once, you know, North and South Vietnam were, uh, were separated, they wanted to replace the South Vietnamese government with a government that was friendly to the communists in the North, they wanted to force um, the Western occupiers out of Vietnam. First, it was the French, and then it was the Americans. And then finally, they wanted to reunite Vietnam. And they stuck very consistently to these objectives throughout the decades and really kind of focused on these are the three things that we need to accomplish. We'll take as much time as we need to in order to accomplish them. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we do tend to think about American involvement specifically when we think about the Vietnam War and we think about kind of it, Ho Chi Minh's response as kind of anti-American policy. But you did mention the fact that the French are there. So how is it that we kind of go through this transition period in which the French are fighting against Vietnamese nationalists to the point where America gets kind of entangled in all of that?
1: So the French really moved into that region uh, in the 1860s, um, you know, kind of at the height of, you know, their European colonialism, you know, European powers had been colonizing all over the world, um, you know, for for generations. And so the French moved into that region, they called it Indochina, um, and it included Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. And um, so they had been there for a long time. And then during World War II, um, the Japanese moved in and kind of pushed the French out. Um, you know, the French were busy, you know, fighting Hitler in Europe and and then, you know, once World War II was over, the Japanese kind of moved out. And, and France really felt like in that post-World War II era that in order for them to maintain their status in the world, they needed to you know retake control of all of their colonies around the world. You know, they felt like, OK, this 19th century colonialism that had made us great, uh, that needed to continue in order to remain great. And so they really were, were focused on that all over, all over the world. Americans were, I don't know, a a little, um, I don't know if ambivalent is the right word, but they were kind of on the fence here because during world war ii american um, intelligence officers in the oss which later becomes the cia they had a really good relationship with ho chi Minh and and his folks um and works you know very closely with them and against and the ho japanese chi yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they 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 liked ho chi Minh, um but after world war ii was over and after truman took office Truman was primarily focused on um, rebuilding Europe so that, um, you know, another Hitler wouldn't arise in Germany and Marshall so that Land. the Soviet Union wouldn't take over. And so they needed the French on their side. And the French and Americans had, uh, it wasn't the greatest relationship in the world. I mean, they cooperated, but, you know, Roosevelt was not crazy about De Gaulle. And and so... Um, so Truman made some some sacrifices. He made some compromises uh in Indochina in order to get French support in Europe, um, in, in terms of you know rebuilding Germany in a Western fashion, um, so that you know they could kind of control what happened in Germany. And so Truman allowed uh the French to retake control of their colony in Indochina, um, sent money to, to help with that effort. And Ho Chi Minh and his nationalists wanted them out. And so, um, the French Indochina war, uh, you know, basically ran from about 1950 to 1954. And, um, the, the French lost, um, the decisive battle there was the Battle of Dinh Binh Phu. And, you know, they, the, the North Vietnamese, you know, just came in and kind of crushed the French and the French were like, forget it. We're, we're done. You know, we're getting out of here. And so um, the United States then had kind of positioned itself with the French, but against the North Vietnamese. And then you, Add on this layer of containment policy and Cold War. And by, you know, 1954, the United States was very committed or was becoming committed to uh, ensuring that communism did not spread. And we had already seen in places like Greece and Turkey where the United States and Western powers were able to keep communists at bay. And so they felt like that it was working. You know, this containment policy is a good policy. So that's how we got involved. Kind of at the beginning with the French, and then the French are out um and then you know there's um uh, this uh kind of waiting period so in in nineteen fifty four they had this peace agreement um that essentially divided Vietnam at the thirty eighth parallel no the seventeenth parallel sorry thirty eighth parallel was Korea. Korea. Yeah. So the, uh, uh, at 17th parallel, and it was supposed to be a temporary divide. And they were going to hold general elections two years later in 1956 and decide who's going to, you know, run the country. Well, Ho Chi Minh had a lot of support. And it became clear to the Americans that Ho Chi Minh was going to win that election pretty handily. And they didn't want that. And so the United States started becoming more directly involved there.
0: Okay. At this time, then, Ho Chi Minh had support. In the South as well,
1: he did. Yes, you know the the his his communist and nationalist forces, you know, both political and military, um, had kind of infiltrated, you know, the whole country. Um, you know, they they did some things that were pretty despicable to you know Vietnamese people, but they also did a lot of things that the Vietnamese people liked. And the one big thing that Ho Chi Minh did was emphasize uh, Vietnamese nationalism and you know creating a united. Vietnam. Right. And he so he was a he nationalist had,
0: first, right? He was a nationalist first and kind of a communist second. I've heard people say that about him.
1: Yeah. It kind of depends on who you talk to. Some scholars say that. Some are you against it? I, I kind of, um, Sort of split the middle on that.
0: Okay. I, I both. would
1: argue that That's a very he hist- was
0: historian both. answer. It's both. It's not one or the other. I mean, it's if
1: both. Yeah, if I had to lean one way or another, I would say yes, he's a nationalist first. Um, because he he was willing to compromise to a certain extent on his on his communism in order to achieve National unity, but he never abandoned those Marxist principles. Do you Um,
0: think? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you think? Do you think we need to describe a little bit about what Ho Chi Minh's communism was? Because I think it was a an American assumption. Within the context of the Cold War, that communism was communism was communism and that it operated in the same way everywhere that it existed. Kind of as you mentioned earlier, that it all was coming from Moscow and it was all kind of... Soviet styled communism, but you know, China, We know now, kind of looking back, that China was very different than the Soviet Union. And so, do you think it's instructive at all to maybe say a little bit about what Ho Chi Minh's vision was for Vietnamese communism and and how maybe that was alike and or different?
1: Yeah, I, I won't get too much into the ideological details um, of of a lot of that. But you're, you're correct that American policymakers, just as a uh, in general believed that all communism flowed out of Moscow and so that you know basically Moscow was directing these puppets all over the world and as you noted, Chinese communism was very different from Russian communism. And most of the outside, most of the Western world didn't realize that for a long time. But there were, you know, there was a lot of tension uh, between Beijing and Moscow for for years. Now, they put up a united front because they had a common enemy in the West. Um, but uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, discord behind the scenes that people didn't know about for a long time. Ho Chi Minh had contacts in both china and the soviet union uh, you know he'd been in china for a while he'd been in the soviet union for a while um you know he'd studied you know the people and the ideas you know as far as his ideology goes i i would characterize it more as a pragmatic communism he believed in these principles but he mainly believed in uniting his people mm-hmm. and he wanted to unite them in within that communist mm-hmm. context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but you know he didn't really want too much support from China because China had a history of invading Vietnam and sure. taking it over, yeah, and so he was a little wary of them, but you know he used them as necessary and kind of the same thing with the Soviets you know he needed their support, support and yeah. when he wasn't getting it from getting it from the United States then um you know the Soviets were willing to give it to him now the sure. Soviets were uh, a little reluctant to go, you know, full in with um, with Ho Chi Minh, because you know, they didn't want to anger the Americans. I mean, they didn't want a World War three any more than the United States did. Right. And so they had to kind of balance that as well.
0: I also want to ask you how important the president is in terms of all of this. I think we kind of live in an era where. We place a lot of importance on who, who the president is. And I think in terms of our kind of telling of cold war history, we place a lot of emphasis on who the particular president is and their personality and how that impacts the way that things are happening. I mean, is it a big deal in terms of like Truman's personality and Truman's approach compared to Eisenhower and then Kennedy? Or is it more of just kind of the way that things are developing globally? And the response of, you know, the people pushing around paper in these um, offices in D.C.
1: Yeah. So I would say that the personality in this particular instance, the personalities mattered more at the beginning. And, you know, and I will contrast Franklin Roosevelt to Harry Truman. Sure. Roosevelt was a big picture guy. Didn't really want to get involved in the details. He was kind of okay. Let's do this now and we'll work the mess out later. Um, but he had a very charming way about him and he was very empathetic with people. Um, I mean, he had this remarkable ability to bring Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin together. Uh, to create, you know, what became known as the Big Three during World War II, and have all of them cooperating, um, and and he he his personality really mattered in terms of those international relationships. And then when Truman took over, Truman had a very different personality. Uh, Truman was a very blunt, a very um, abrupt person. Um, you know, he kind of had his mind made up, and this is what he was going to do. And, you know, he would listen to his advisors, um, but he was more inclined to uh, uh, follow the advice of the hardliners and, rather than following the advice of folks who were saying, hey, you really kind of need to take it easy on the Soviets because they have some legitimate cons- security concerns. Um, you know, this is sort of their mindset. In all of this. And so if you go easy on them, um, without going too easy, that will benefit the United States down the road. And, and that's not the path that, that Truman took. Um, there's this famous story about, um, Foreign Minister Molotov uh, coming through Washington, D.C. in 1945 um, on his way to San Francisco for the United Nations Conference where they created the U.N. And uh, he stopped by and, and you know, paid a visit to the new president who'd been in office, I think, for like 10 days. And um, they had this really tense exchange in the Oval Office. And um, Harry Truman walks out the door and sees one of his aides there. And he says, you know, I really you know, gave this guy the one-two and I showed him. And then he stopped and he said, do you think that was the right thing to do? And it really revealed his insecurity because mm-hmm. he didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt had left Truman out of all of these discussions. Right. And he was vice president. And so he was kind of figuring it out as he as he was going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those personalities really mattered early on and they solidified the relationship between the countries. But then as time goes, you know, through the 1950s and 1960s, the personalities mattered, but the bureaucratic inertia also mattered. And so the things that Truman... You know, set in motion. Eisenhower continued and maybe accelerated somewhat. Eisenhower was really less concerned about Vietnam. He was mostly concerned about Laos. Um, when he was leaving office and Kennedy was coming in to office in in January of 1961, uh, they had you know the little briefing you know that the you know the outgoing president has with the incoming president about um, you know foreign matters. They didn't talk about Vietnam at all. Uh, they talked That's about nice. Laos. That that oh. was the the real concern. Um, But the things that Truman set in motion and that Eisenhower continued, Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon accelerated. And the decisions that they made, the choices that they made all along, got the United States further enmeshed in that conflict.
0: Right. Because things, I mean, is it fair to, I mean, I know we really get involved with Johnson. I think everybody knows that. But my understanding is, is that in terms of like people on the ground those numbers really increase with the kennedy administration is that correct or am i misunderstanding
1: they began to increase then yes um so after after 1956 when the general elections did not happen um the united states got concerned about who was going to you know be in charge of of um, south vietnam and so um, we basically propped up a guy named uh, Ngo Dinh Ziem, and Ziem became the president of South Vietnam. Ziem was corrupt. He was ruthless. He didn't relate to his people, um, you know, the masses of his people. You know, he he surrounded himself with family members and a small group of, of cronies um, that you know benefited financially uh, from from his rule. But he wasn't communist. He wasn't Ho Chi Minh. And so the United States continued to uh, to support him in the late 1950s. And and one of the things that was kind of driving Eisenhower in this um, was this domino theory. So there was this, right,
0: this the idea dominoes.
1: that if yeah. if one country falls to communism, uh-huh. then other countries in the region would fall. And before you know it, you know, people in North... The Japan whole China world turns Russia. red. Yes, yeah. It yeah, all
0: turns red.
1: <laughs> and so, so that mentality... Um, you know, persisted through the late '50s through the Eisenhower administration, and when Kennedy took over, when he we, when he came to office, I think the United States had something like 900 uh, soldiers in Vietnam, and they were there as military advisors. They were not there in a combat role. By the time, correct? Yeah, yeah. The air quotes. <laughs> I know it's was uh, like, an
0: audio media, but nobody saw me. I did the little air quotes. <laughs> military advisors.
1: And, and initially that's really how they functioned. Um, Sure. But the, uh, but by the time Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, there were 16,000 military advisors. So you go from 900 to 16,000. And that's a, that's a, you know, a size. That's a lot of
0: advice. That's a lot of advice. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And by that point, they were doing a little more than advising. Um, I would like to mention just kind of a, a UNCP connection here. So one of our former colleagues in the history department, Mickey Conley, mm-hmm. um, was retired army, and he used to teach the class on American involvement in Vietnam War before I took it over after his retirement um and um i don't I don't know if he was in special forces or what, but you know he he would talk about being in Laos in nineteen fifty eight um as a soldier there when oh, wow. we weren't really supposed to be in supposed Laos
0: to be in Laos, yeah,
1: yeah. And so you know the United States had we've been sending you know military personnel to that region for for quite a while, but even when Kennedy was assassinated um and and he Kennedy was assassinated about three weeks after nodine Zm was assassinated and so zm the United States basically turned a blind eye they Kennedy saw that it, it wasn't working with zm he mm-hmm. was a Poor leader, corrupt, you know, inefficient. And so the United States turned a blind eye and allowed the coup to happen. And then there was a whole series of leadership changes for the next several years, um, before, uh, President Tew uh, came to power, um, later on in the 1960s and, and provided some stability, but it was still Corrupt and, corrupt and inefficient, um, but it's really during the Johnson administration. Sure. When and I know
0: we, we do wars, need to yeah. move on. We need to move on to that. But I just, in terms of kind of thinking about all of this in a Cold War context, I just wanted to back up and ask one question in terms of the kind of increase in manpower or advice, if we want to call it that, uh, that happens during the Kennedy administration. Do you think it's important that we consider how things are? I mean, like things are happening in Cuba during the Kennedy administration. I mean, in terms of kind of tensions within this Cold War context, all of that, all those tensions are increasing during his administration. Do you think it's important that we consider that within this? Or do you think it is, these are very separate issues?
1: Oh, no, it's, it's very important to understand that. And John Kennedy was a Cold Warrior, just like Dwight Eisenhower was a sure. Cold Warrior. Now, they had different perspectives. Eisenhower, his approach was um, kind of this um, massive retaliation approach that if the Soviet Union does something that we're just going to yeah, hit him with everything we've got. Kennedy didn't like the all or nothing tenor of that approach. And so um, he, he, Kennedy really um, was instrumental in promoting counterinsurgency uh, tactics uh, within the United States military and, you know, promoting special forces and things like that. Um, but he, his Cold War views were not really any different than Eisenhower or Truman's. Um, he was very much a Cold Warrior. Um, you know, they all kind of got on the same page when it came to foreign policy in, in that regard. Sure. And, Putting Kennedy in that Cold War context is vitally important because, you know, you'd had the Bay of Pigs fiasco in Cuba Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, shortly after he took office and he had to, you know, recover from that. Uh, I mean, he he needed to really kind of build his chops as a, a true defender of democracy, and um, the Cuban Missile Crisis helped him out yeah. in 1962. Um, it, it sort of restored some of his credibility, um, but yeah, he he was very committed to containing the spread of communism, making sure those dominoes didn't fall, and ensuring that the United States remained a a powerhouse throughout the world.
0: Okay, yeah. And I won't I won't bother asking like how things might have been different had Kennedy not been assassinated because Kennedy was assassinated. Right. Um yeah. And so uh Johnson LBJ becomes president. And that's when we see a marked shift in American involvement. So talking talking goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Talking goal. Incident.
1: Yeah, so Lyndon Johnson, um, when he became president, what ended up def- the two things that really defined his presidency, and these, and this was the great struggle that he had throughout. His, his tenure as president was um, his desire to achieve the great society. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had all these domestic programs that he had spent his entire career working toward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was very passionate about eliminating poverty right. and, and providing health care and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that people that Americans needed in America. But he also found himself saddled with the Vietnam War, and, and Johnson could have made different choices um, that would have lessened that tension. He chose to proceed down the path of, you know, defending South Vietnam, you know, containing communism where it was and, you know, promoting, you know, what he considered to be American democracy or Western democracy uh, throughout the world. And so that tension is really what hurt him, I think, as president was he wasn't able to devote the time and energy and resources to either thing that he should have in order to be successful yeah you you mentioned the the Gulf of Tonkin incident so in August of 1964 um, an incident occurred uh, off the coast of North Vietnam uh, a naval incident Um, and and there's a lot of confusion and speculation and I don't know that we'll ever really know the true story behind
0: oh I was so hoping you were going to tell me the true story Uh, behind
1: that but that's the joy of history. We we can't know everything. But so you know, um, the 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 official story was initially that um, the North Vietnamese had attacked uh, United States warship, um, the USS Maddox, and in the Gulf of Tonkin, um, which is you know right there off the the coast of of North Vietnam. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about what happened. Did anybody really get, you know, was anybody shooting anything? Was it weather related because there was, it was raining and stormy that night. So there's a lot to that story. The important part of it, though, was that Lyndon Johnson took that incident and said, look, the North Vietnamese are being aggressive with the United States, and we have to do something about it. And he very quickly got a resolution passed through Congress called the Tonkin Resolution um, that essentially gave the president a blank check to prosecute military operations in the region. And so uh, one of the questions that I like to ask my students is, does anybody know when the last time the United States officially went to war, because Congress is the only body within the United States that can declare war. Mm and It's 1941. It's, It's World War II. We have been involved in many conflicts since then. And the Korean War from 1950 to 1954 really kind of set a precedent for American involvement, military involvement throughout the world without Congress declaring war. Uh, mm-hmm. President Truman called uh, America's involvement in, in Korea a police action. Mm-hmm. And Congress never declared war, but the United States sent a lot of troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, armed forces personnel died and were injured in that mm-hmm. war, mm-hmm. but it was never an official war. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of set the precedent for the executive branch. To really control those military operations and decide when the United States would get involved and when we wouldn't and how all of that would would function, mm-hmm. and so with the Tonkin Resolution, it kind of continued that you know that precedent there and allowed Johnson to uh, prosecute you know military operations in Vietnam, um, however he chose to do without officially calling it a, uh, a war. And then there was another incident that occurred in February of 1965, um, where the North Vietnamese attacked a Marine base at Pleiku. And this was the first time that the North Vietnamese had attacked an American installation. And, you know, so those two events, the, the, the incident in the Gulf of Tonkin and the attack on Pleiku, um, really kind of set in motion the uh the the path to American escalation in Vietnam, and um, you know after the play incident, um the United States um, started a massive bombing campaign called Rolling Thunder mm-hmm. um, that they had not done at that point, not at that scale. And so what you see in nineteen sixty five is this you know rather quick um, series of events. That led to massive escalation of American involvement uh, in the war, and really the the July of 1965 is sort of the the time period that historians look at and say, okay, this is where American policy really shifted. Um, mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson met with several of his advisors um, during you know number of meetings in July of 1965, and really debated whether or not to to go all in. And 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 really, you know, get fully involved in the war and to send ground troops, or whether to start backing out. And uh, there were arguments on both sides. And Lyndon Johnson chose to go all in. And so, after July 1965, that's really when you start to see uh, a, a large increase of American soldiers and sailors and marines and, and airmen uh, in Vietnam.
0: How does the world respond? And I guess I'm, I'm asking specifically about communist parts of the world. Cause if we're meant to understand this in a Cold War context, in terms of our conversations or the way that we tell histories about the Korean War. I think we have a much clearer understanding about what the Soviets are thinking about what's happening, some of the steps that they're taking, certainly what China's thinking and some of the steps that they're taking in terms of their relationship with North Korea. But what are communists and other places, like what is their response to this kind of intensification?
1: Um, the The Soviets and the Chinese were not really interested in going all in with the North Vietnamese. Um, they didn't have a lot of strategic interests in Vietnam, nor did the United States. I mean, that was one of the arguments that American advisors made: was we don't really have a lot of strategic strategic interests here, so why are we doing this? And the especially the Soviets were very careful about provoking the United States. Um, you know, they they didn't want to go in too far for fear that it would lead to a wider escalation um, that they may not have been prepared for. And so, yes, the Soviets and the Chinese continued to provide um, military support, um, financial support to Ho Chi Minh and his forces. Um, but Ho Chi Minh kind of had to work for it. Uh, it wasn't like they were, you know, the Soviets and the Chinese were just, you know, pouring money, you know, endless amounts of money into this. Um, they, they, the, the, they, they they were putting the brakes on it a little bit too. And Americans didn't even know that the United States was making this shift in policy. You know, the, the public statements that Johnson and, and his administration officials were making were, you know, there's no policy change here. Um, you know, we're going to be getting out soon, we're making good progress, things are going fine. And so from the American standpoint, even, nobody really understood at the time how deeply involved the United States was getting into this war.
0: When did that change?
1: Um by 1968, I mean, it, it happened over time. Um, you, you, start to see more of it in, in, in 67. Um, you know, the war protests began in kind of in earnest in 1965, and you know, you, you always had. War protests with any conflict that the United States has been involved with, but um, the, by 1967, um, those protests were, you know, starting to become more organized and, and increasing. And probably the biggest wake-up call I think for the American public was the Tet Offensive in 1968, um, where the the North Vietnamese they just kind of put all their eggs in one basket. Um, they were pretty spent. I mean, we we didn't know this at the time, um but you know, we we learned later that you know, they you know, they were struggling to maintain their momentum and keep the war going. And so they said, "Okay, we're going to you know, we're going to have this huge offensive during the Vietnamese holiday of Tet." It's like, you know, Christmas and New Year's and Easter and 4th of July all rolled up into one big holiday. Okay. And, um, you know, this will be a big surprise. It, it wasn't as much of a surprise to American military officials um, as it was to the South Vietnamese. Um, You know, they kind of allowed it to happen to a certain extent. But for the American public, what was shocking was that the North Vietnamese could launch such a large offensive. It was a military defeat for the North Vietnamese. They were kind of demoralized after that. but. Ho Chi Minh and you know the folks in in Hanoi um, recognized the the public relations aspect of it. That the American public really saw this as a huge psychological defeat.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: if the administration, if the Johnson administration, they'd kind of gone on this campaign in the fall of 1967, saying, "Yeah, we're almost done. I mean, we're we're over you now." They brought Westmoreland, General Westmoreland, back uh, to the United States to uh, um, you know to do a little you know, barnstorming tour. And then suddenly the communists are able to make such a big attack. You know, I mean, they breached the the walls of the U.S. embassy. You know, that Mm -hmm. should have been the most secure place in Vietnam. And Mm -hmm. they got in. And so it was a big public relations setback for the Johnson administration when when the Tet Offensive occurred.
0: So Nixon becomes president and we there's a change in policy without a change in policy. is that fair?
1: yeah, so Nixon comes in um you know he campaigned in nineteen sixty eight on his law and order. Um, you know, promise that, you know, he's going to kind of, you know, get the hippies under control and the war protesters and the civil sure. rights protesters and all of that. And he allows the media, at least, and the public to believe that he has a secret plan for ending the Vietnam War. Um, he never had a secret. So plan.
0: secret. He didn't even know what it was, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it was something that was kind of, I don't remember how it came about, but it was kind of mentioned like in a press conference and he just went with it. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't something that he devised, but he sort of went with it. And so, um, you know, so he goes in and and to kind of frame, you know, Nixon's involvement here. We need to put this in the context of detente. So Richard Nixon, when he takes office, Henry Kissinger is first his national security advisor and then later becomes secretary of state. And they want to relax the tensions with the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. the Chinese, mm-hmm. and so of course Nixon makes you goes know, to
0: China, you
1: know, yeah, visit you know visits China, yeah, um, you know, and 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 their efforts in easing those tensions are generally pretty successful, um, you know, with both both countries, and so we've got to put American Vietnam. You know involvement in Vietnam in that context as well, and this is where the Soviets and the Chinese you know really kind of started backing off in supporting Ho Chi Minh a little bit too because they didn't they they wanted better relationship with the united mm-hmm. states it, it worked more to their advantage to have that um richard nixon dispatches uh henry kissinger from the very beginning from 1969 you know almost as soon as he takes office uh in both secret and public negotiations um with hanoi and you know the, uh kissinger is going back and forth to paris all the time he's going to vietnam he's going to thailand um and so you know over the next 4 years um, you know, these series of negotiations happen and, you know, sometimes we're close to, you know, um, you know, achieving success and getting peace. And then suddenly we're not. One of the things that, that Nixon did. As president eventually, he didn't do this right away, but eventually he started the process of Vietnamization. Mm-hmm. So if Lyndon Johnson started the process of Americanization of the war in nineteen sixty-five, mm-hmm. uh, Nixon was really the one that started the process of Vietnamization, of of turning the prosecution of the war back over to the South Vietnamese. So right. that the Americans weren't, you know, at the forefront and American involvement in terms of troop levels was highest in 1968. Um, we were up right around 548,000, I think, uh, something like that. And that was the highest number that that we uh, attained. And then we started, you know, ramping that down. Um, Vietnamization was actually Lyndon Johnson's idea. Um, you know, he had kind of toyed with that a little bit toward the end of his administration. But Nixon is the one that really started to implement it. And Nixon wanted to get out. Um, with, he, he wanted uh, an honorable peace. Was there was the
0: phrase, call. right? What was that phrase that he used over and over again? It was something about like, oh, do you remember what it was? I think it
1: was uh, peace with honor or honorable peace or something like that. I don't something remember like exactly. Um, something like that. But, but yeah, but he, you know, he, he did
0: not. He wanted to save face. He wanted to yeah. get out without it looking like we were defeated and demoralized. He,
1: he did not want to be the first president to lose a war. Nixon was very concerned about his image, you know, which is why he had this taping system that. Which ran is why all he recorded everything yes. that he ever said,
0: which ultimately ruined his image <laughs> and legacy forever.
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah. So his, so his his your know, strong desire to you know, have this great image really ended up being his downfall. But you know, really. he didn't. He he knew that the United States needed to get out of this war. That it wasn't right. it wasn't benefiting the United States. And it was hurting you know the u s in, in the eyes of the rest of the world sure. and hurting some of his other larger foreign policy objectives, and so he wanted to get out, but he wanted to do it with an honorable victory and so um you know he dispatched uh, Kissinger to you know have these series of public and private um negotiations. And, you know, they kind of went back and forth for four years. And by the time they signed the Paris peace accords in 1973, they really could have signed the exact same document in 1969. Um, I mean, nothing really was gained through the years of negotiation. And during those years, the United States, you know, initiated some pretty severe bombing campaigns that's um, what i was
0: referring to when i said yeah. kind of initiating a new pol- a, n- a new strategy or whatever that yeah. was essentially not a new strategy because i was aware that our troop numbers declined um after that peak but it was also my understanding, and it's been a while since I've studied the Vietnam War. It was also my understanding that with Nixon, the bombing intensified and actually like where we were bombing expanded, right? Cause that isn't that when we start kind of bombing Cambodia and Laos? Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yes, that is correct. Okay. So. Um, the, the North Vietnamese had been using a, um, um, a transportation network,
0: the Ho Chi Minh that, trail,
1: Ho Chi Minh trail. Exactly. Which really started out as a trail, like a little footpath eventually <laughs> right. became like paved roads and, you know, stuff like that. But part of that ran through Laos and Cambodia. And so, you know, they were staging operations into South Vietnam, from Laos and Cambodia, which technically was illegal, um, but, you know, they were continuing to do it. And one of the things that Nixon was really criticized for was, on the one hand, he's telling the American people, you know, we're getting out of Vietnam and bringing the troops back. But then, you know, it becomes uh, apparent that we're actually expanding the war and widening it into Cambodia and Laos. And so he started, you know, having some bombing raids, you know, particularly in Cambodia, to root out those sanctuaries where the communists, where the you know, North Vietnamese, were launching attacks on American troops in South Vietnam, and it, which was, you know, part of the reason for the protests um, in 1970 that led, you know, for instance, to Kent State incident. Right. Um, you know, these, you know, these protests that occurred because Nixon had been saying one thing in public, and then we find out that oh, he's doing the exact opposite here. And so yes, while he's drawing the troop numbers down. He's also intensifying the bombing campaign at different periods. And he had, you know, several different uh, bombing campaigns that occurred. One of them, you know, over Christmas and one of them over Easter. And, uh, you know, and using those to try to really just break the will of the North Vietnamese and bring them to their knees and get them to the negotiating table so that they would stop the war.
0: I assume get better terms.
1: Yeah. Since
0: there were negotiations ongoing. So then we get to that. Really iconic moment with the helicopters leaving the embassy in Saigon and people, you know, the people holding on. And I think oh, that imagery is maybe a little bit more fresh for Americans because it so much of it seemed to be replaying. As we left Afghanistan, so how how do how do we get to that moment then with the helicopters
1: so after the peace Paris peace accords, um, you know, there were a whole series of um, uh, restrictions and contingencies you know where the Americans agreed to pull so many troops out and the North Vietnamese would agree to pull their troops back and so all of this was supposed to happen in stages. Um, you know, and there was, you know, these assurances to the, uh, TU regime in South Vietnam that North Vietnam didn't hold to the agreements, that the United States would be right there and, and, you know, we'd be, you know, we'd, we'd support them. Congress had other ideas. Congress basically pulled the plug on financing you funding you know. it. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Nixon, uh, eventually Ford, um, we're not really interested in fighting the war anymore. I mean, they wanted to help as much as they could, but you know, they they their hands were kind of tied there. And so, the North Vietnamese thought that it was going to take two to three years in order to you know retake to reunite the whole country and to take Saigon. It ended up happening in a matter of weeks, right. and so it really caught everybody off guard when those North Vietnamese troops you know, we're sitting outside Saigon and they had control of most of the rest of South Vietnam and they were ready to move in. And so once they started marching in, um, you know, what was supposed to take a couple of years took a matter of weeks. And so everybody was scrambling to get out. And the U.S. ambassador at the time um, did not really take seriously that threat. And so he didn't put things in place to get not just American personnel out, but the South Vietnamese that had been cooperating with the Americans, right. because everybody knew what was going to happen to those yeah. people once, you know, the communists yeah. took over. Yeah. And so that's where you have this sudden, frantic push to get out of Saigon. So they had, so what they ended up doing, the the, the Huey helicopters, were really kind of one of the mainstays of the American military involvement in Vietnam. I mean, whenever you think about the Vietnam War, the audio image that yeah. usually is there are, are you know the helicopter rotors, okay. right. and so they had this system of ferrying people out to American ships uh, just off the coast of, of South Vietnam. And they did that for, you know, a good 24 hours. Um, and that's where you have those images of these frantic South Vietnamese people trying to get on any of those helicopters yeah. just to get out yeah. to save their lives yeah. and their families.
0: It's just it's so heavy to think about and to right. think that, I mean, seriously, seeing that imagery happen again yeah. in a similar yeah. sort of. And I always tell students that to say like, oh, history repeats itself is kind of, Is lazy. It it doesn't really repeat itself, but that cycles and and patterns do. And I don't know, it's it's rather inexplicable to think how that this is just a very parallel sort of experience and that policymakers, I don't know. It was lost on them, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, okay. We can't talk about that. Back to Vietnam. I want to um, finish by asking you, um, and maybe this does kind of connect with what I was just referencing, but the legacies of Vietnam. Even though the the Cold War ended, the the legacy and kind of I'm not sure how to how to term it, but needing to overcome. Right. Needing to do things to overcome the loss or whatever happened, the Vietnam complex or whatever we can call it. What is it about the conflict in Vietnam that it still is really just it's such an issue in this country? You know, even even today, people, something happens and there's this immediate comparison to Vietnam. And we've kind of couched this conversation with needing to understand it within the context of the Cold War. So how is it that we've moved beyond the Cold War but we're still kind of wrestling with our involvement in Vietnam?
1: The 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 Vietnam War came at a time when the United States was grappling with so many things. You know, we were in the midst of the civil rights movement, there were other protest movements that were spawned by the civil rights movement um you know there were um uh, economic issues you know the you know the united states in the 1950s was, was supposedly this bastion of middle class growth and all but really what we saw in the 1960s was there was still a lot of poverty um and so the war came at a time when america was grappling with a lot of things And then it also came at a time when those baby boomers that had been born, you know, after World War II were coming of age. And so they were the ones who were fighting this war. They were the ones who were protesting this war. And so all of those things, you know, coming together like that. And then you've got you know the Watergate situation where um you know Americans, you know, really started to kind of lose faith in their national leaders. And so with the United States essentially losing the Vietnam War. I mean the, the you know the North Vietnamese achieved those objectives. You know, mm-hmm. they they got the uh regime out, they you um, got the Americans out. And they re- eventually reunited Vietnam. And so mm-hmm. they, they achieved their objectives. And so for Americans, you know, losing that war and then losing faith in their leaders and, you know, all of the turmoil of the protest movements in the, you know, 50s, 60s and 70s, it was going to take a long time to get over that. To some extent, the, uh, the first Gulf war in the early 90s, you know, helped alleviate some of that. But that was such a, Quick And and really kind of painless war in many ways, um, simply because it didn't have the, you know, the dramatic impact on American society at large that the Vietnam War had or that World War II had. And so, yeah, it has been a touch point for a long time for, um, you know, for, for Americans. And I think it will continue to be, um, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, America's involvement in, Af- in Afghanistan lasted longer than the Vietnam War, than our involvement yes, in did. Vietnam. But I don't think it had the, you know, the, the attention the constant attention that the vietnam war had and you, know, you didn't have you know uh, the draft and you didn't have draft dodgers and you didn't have you know these large protests and things like that and so while you know america's involvement in you know afghanistan in particular but in the middle east generally you know has been going on really for 30 years mm-hmm. um the Vietnam War is still kind of that that touch point, and and I think it probably will continue to be until there is another event like that to kind of take its place and, and you know, become the touch point for another generation of Americans.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Dr. Billingsley, for your time today.
1: Well, thanks for letting me come on your program. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed the discussion.
0: I have as well. Have a great day.
1: All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks.
0: Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will discuss the mad monk of Russia, Grigory Rasputin. Speak with you soon.